Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That's L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Today, the spotlight is on internationally recognized guitar virtuoso Tyler Grant. Tyler joined us from his camper inside of Dinosaur National Monument in Utah for a conversation covering his work as an entertainer slash river guide, the perceived perils of mixing expensive guitars with class three and four rapids, the history and evolution of bluegrass music, and a whole lot more. Tyler references our earlier episode with Scotty Stoughton, and I encourage you to check that one out if you haven't yet. I learned a lot during this discussion, and I hope you do too. Hello. Hello, Lawrence. Whoa, Tyler, you sound crystal clear. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Wow. I see you. Can you see me? I cannot see you, no. Okay, let let me reconfigure. I wasn't sure if this was a video or audio. Here we go. Start video. Here we go. Excellent. All right. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, man. Thank you for making time, uh, especially given that you seem to be in some beautiful surroundings. Where are you? Well, I'm in my truck camper at the boathouse here in Jensen, Utah, a drift adventures dinosaur. We just wrapped up our boating season, and this is my rookie season as a raft guide. Uh, We took out uh, yesterday and had a sort of end of season dinner and company party. And today we are beginning the boathouse cleanup and inventory. And I ducked away here for a little while to talk to you. Well, thank you for making time to do that. Um, Tell me a little bit about what, um, what does that mean uh, to be a boating guide? Like, what are you doing? What what are people signing up for with you? What's that all about? Well, a drift dinosaur runs multi-day trips on the Yampa and Green Rivers in Dinosaur National Monument. And we also run daily trips all throughout the summer. So uh, the daily trip is a beautiful nine-mile stretch of river through Split Mountain Canyon in the monument. It's gorgeous. I mean, scenery that rivals Grand Canyon, you know, huge uh, cliffs of sandstone and limestone all these ancient geologic layers we're traveling through pristine wilderness uh, inaccessible by any other means but uh, a boat and the multi-day trips the yampa river is a 72 mile stretch uh, all again within dinosaur national monument which is 280,000 acres a huge uh, piece of public land and it's a five-day trip and the gates of Lador section on the Green River, which we run for most of the season because the Yampa becomes unrunnable around early July, is a four-day trip of uh, 44 miles. And what that entails for the raft guides is we pack up all the equipment, all the meals, and load up uh, a bunch of guests, up to 25 guests, and we row them down the Green River camping at beautiful, immaculate campsites in the National Monument in the middle of nowhere in these canyons of all this ancient geology. And we get to experience class three and four rapids. Some of the guests can 
get on small craft like duckies, which are inflatable kayaks or stand up paddle boards. And we run these beautiful rapids and these stretches of river and three nights we will cook for them, uh, maintain all the other equipment, including, you know, the toilet, which we call the groover and uh, the dish systems. And we abide by park regulations as far as safety and sanitization, uh, hand washing systems are, are of utmost importance. So basically we guide these people down the river and show them a great time. And as the company has evolved in the last few years, we started this river Wondergrass program and tying this into Scotty Stoughton bonfire entertainment, putting on the renewal festival here coming up. Scotty is a partner in this company and a river enthusiast, a professional stand-up paddleboarder. And it was his idea, along with his partner, Javier Placer, to bring artists down the river. And it wasn't called River Wondergrass at first. It was just a dream of bringing artists down the river. And the word River Wondergrass is a play on Scotty's other festival, Winter Wondergrass. So we got this thing rolling last summer and it became a hit. People love it. And so that was how I got introduced to this world of whitewater, which I never in a million years thought I would be involved in. You know, I'm a guitar player and I'm an outdoor enthusiast. However, traveling these rivers as an artist and seeing how this all went down and hanging out with this amazing culture of young river guides here at Adrift, I just wanted to be part of this group and I wanted to learn the ways. So along the way, I'm entertaining on these River Wondergrass trips, which entails us playing for them at the campsites and doing some other like neat little excursions, like maybe a hike to a beautiful overlook where we'll play some songs for them. Even some floating jams that happen on the rafts themselves. So through this experience, I decided, okay, I'm going to get my hands on this and learn how to stand up paddleboard in the whitewater, learn how to row, learn how to paddle guide. So I got involved last season and uh, came back this year for guide school and became a, a raft guide full time. But it's wow. a perfect balance between my music life and my love of the outdoors because I'm still entertaining on all of these trips, uh, whether I'm an artist officially or not. I always have my guitar and I always get some music time. And I've been able to sort of work that into my understanding of the history of this region and the geology. So I've become a bit of a, of a raft guide musician presenter here for Adrift. You said that it really, uh, the business or the, the idea started to take off last summer. It must have been such a welcome treat in the midst of COVID and maybe the inability to, to play live shows. Like just, it just seems like what great timing to get people outdoors into the open air, doing something that must have taken a lot of the weight of the world or the weight of the situation off of everybody. Oh, absolutely. For everybody involved, it was uh, a window of opportunity in, uh, you know, obviously a real bittersweet way. All of my shows were canceled. Scotty's festivals were canceled. He went through a lot, you know, a lot of stress. You know, we all did. And we all had to find ways of reinventing ourselves. And this was the perfect opportunity because we're outdoors 
you know, everybody was, we didn't require any screenings or anything, but we did really emphasize that, you know, everyone coming in should be checking their temps, being as careful as possible. We're only indoors together for a short time in the shuttle vans and we would mask up in the vans and then we'd all be outside the whole time soaking up vitamin D. And yes, it was one of the only performing opportunities for us musicians and for the guests. Um, they just were, were so grateful for the opportunity to hear live music. And especially in this really intimate setting, we have no PA out there. We're just sitting on a beautiful Sandy beach in a, in a river Canyon playing music for them. And it's funny looking back and understanding that we always had the choice to do this. However, everybody in the music industry is just pushing their band, pushing their brands, pushing their festivals as hard as they can. That's what we understand we need to do to make it happen in this business. And it took this catastrophic change of events, this great pause for this event and this little river culture to sort of coalesce and and grab that opportunity to create something new and you know uh the genius of of scotty and javi being able to roll on a dime as they did and bring this music culture into the river culture has been it's just a win-win for all of us yeah i i mean there's there's something very very uh sort of poignant moving in that 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 story that description and um I'm also intrigued with the idea that you guys, you know, you play as part of these trips that it's, uh, and, um, but the thing I can't reconcile is, um, class three or four rapids and guitars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> how do you, how do you transport your equipment? And do you take like your second tier guitars? Like are the, are the <laughs> precious ones left home? How does that work? That's a very common question. And I will post photos of us, you know, on my social media or my website, you know, performing on a raft uh, and and I'm involved in the bluegrass world where everybody has really nice instruments and and this is the most common thing like how in the world do you have your 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 callings guitar out here um, you know oh you're gonna cry when something happens to that guitar or this or that and I you know truly I am way more concerned about my wrists and my back and my ankles. And uh, we bring our nice guitars to, to, to answer your question. Um, and, and this came up early on. Our first River Wondergrass trip was in June of 2020, and it was an experimental float. It wasn't called River Wondergrass yet, but we had uh, four artists, uh, myself, Daniel Rodriguez, Andy Hall, uh, who's from the infamous String Dusters, and Andy Thorne, who's in Leftover Salmon. And Andy Hall brought it up. He says, hey, I don't have like a beater dobro a resonator guitar i don't have uh all i have is my nice instrument and and the point is we have we have dry bags for the instruments and all of us are used to traveling with flight cases anyway so there really is not much danger to the instruments uh we, we haven't flipped any rafts yet <laughs> on any river wondergrass trips um, the real danger is in the dryness of this desert environment. Mm. 
So we keep humidifiers in there. We put them in the nice hard cases and we have these big instrument dry bags here at Adrift and they get rigged up with the rest of the baggage or dunnage as we call it on the rafts and we will cover them up to keep them out of the sun. And as soon as we get to a camp, you know, and we're unloading the boats, we take the instrument straight to the shade because that is truly the biggest danger is just the heat and the dryness out here. And uh, we haven't had any instrument damage at all in uh, now it's been 20 River Wondergrass expeditions. Wow, that's incredible. That's really incredible. Um, is it hard to stay in tune? It is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It, it's the, the, the changing of the environments and, and, and again, the dryness um, and going from sun to shade and, and these kind of things. Sure, tuning, tuning is an issue. And I actually did invest in a carbon fiber guitar this season which i've brought out on some of the trips it's a really nice guitar it's made by rain song and the reason wasn't necessarily to protect my other instruments but it was exactly what you mentioned just to have an instrument that doesn't move as much it's not wood so it's more consistent in the tuning and in the action you know uh, aside from tuning what will happen as we're out there in the heat and the dryness for several days is the action on the guitar can get really low and you'll have some splatty notes, you know? So, so yeah, there is a bit of maintenance and, and, and for me going out there often, I really have to keep an eye on that, you know, the humidifier and, and keep it full and every now and then adjust the action. Uh, for most artists, you know, they're in there for four days and the guitar might, you know, might sort of move a little bit on them. But we've had people bring in, Lindsay Liu brought her 1951 Martin last year. And this year she brought her nice custom brand new Preston Thompson guitar. And uh, it's, it's really a testament to the expertise of the raft guides. I, I always tell the artists coming in, say, don't worry, your guitar is going to be just fine. We are not United Airlines. We're, we're a Drift Adventures dinosaur here. We're going to take good care of your instrument. It's funny that you, 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 you say that because that, when you were first answering the question i was thinking well it's probably no no worse and potentially a lot better than sticking them in the, in the overhead or the way it, you know you hear the horror stories of of how people lose their instruments on uh on flights it's it's heartbreaking, <laughs> it's oh, heartbreaking. absolutely yeah 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 um that work that you're doing as a guide and as an artist um it's also interesting to me that it's all integrated like you're you're not putting on solely your river guide hat and then going off and doing that as like, you know, a side hustle or a way to make money when you're not touring. You're specifically integrating your life as an artist and your work as an artist into your work as a guide. And um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because that would that would not have been my intuition necessarily. Um, it seems like they're different uh you know, they're different jobs, different skill sets, different roles. Um, how am I wrong? Oh, you, you bring up a very good point. Your traditional raft guide is there not just to run the rivers and be an expert boater and cook meals and clean up and take care of, of all the other guiding duties. They're also there to entertain the guests. So in the Adrift Handbook, one of the 
you know, missions of the guides is to, you know, after dinner, after all, everything's cleaned up to tell a story, to play a little bit of music. A lot of our guides here are musical and, and play instruments. Uh, some of them are excellent presenters and have some neat poetry readings and stories, you know, backstories about the history of river running and the, the, the geology and all the natural history of the area. Every now and then, I will pull out the John Wesley Powell diary and read a section of his account of the first running of this section of river that we just ran. Wow. And that's always a fun, fun thing to tie in the history of it and, and give his account of his party running disaster falls, you know, which we just ran. And, and these are sections of river that that expedition named and first charted and mapped back in 1869. So it kind of really goes hand in hand. The one caveat to my raft guiding duties is that in the evening, I'm responsible for entertaining in, in a, a more involved way. You know, we'll have a, a, a two hour set or a 90 minute set to perform. So I'm not available in the kitchen or, or on the dishes. Like, um, like would normally, you know, be the, the, the raft guide's duty. So we've been able to cover for that. And I'm supremely grateful again for, you know, the leadership in this company for allowing me to, and I, I do my best to make up for it in other ways. If I'm not available for dinner, I'll try to make up for it, you know, on the D rig or getting up early to make coffee or other, other things I can do when I'm not on call as a musician. And because I am really in two different roles, you know, as artist, entertainer, and as raft guide. And that evolved during my training, where at first I was just rowing baggage. I wasn't taking passengers on the boat yet. You know, I was kind of what they would call a swamper, where you're there to help and row baggage. But I really am so passionate about this guiding life, and I really wanted to you know, master all the skills that the other raft guides do. I didn't want to make any excuses for myself, you know, being a musician or being the artist. And so, you know, not too long into the season, after the first few expeditions, I did start rowing guests. And, and I love that part of it because while we're on the boat, we're really getting to know each other and the guests will kind of, you know, trade off, you know, boats from one day to the next. And so I'll get to know a lot of the different guests and, and I love telling them the stories as we're traveling through these canyons about the history, about the geology, about the rivers, you know, about the wildlife. So guiding and entertaining are in a lot of ways, you know, naturally sort of tied together. Um, but here at Adrift, you know, with our River Wondergrass series, we've, you know, we've really taken that to the next level. And, uh, and, and it has showed in the response of our guests. They love being informed, um, about all these, you know, about all these natural wonders that we're traveling through. And most of our guests on River Wondergrass are, are diehard music fans anyway. So that would have been enough for them just to have the music. Uh, but for me, I'm just, I'm just extremely lucky and fortunate to have fallen in with this group who accepts my desires to both entertain and guide, um, and fortunately, they, they needed me guiding on a lot of these trips, as it turned out. Um, it's hard to keep, 
keep staffed for as, as much as we tried to pull off this summer. And so, you know, I, I guided on a lot of the daily trips and what did I do on the daily trips? I brought my guitar and I performed for people in the van on the shuttle ride. There's very little time to entertain people on the daily trip. You're just, you know, taking the shuttle ride of about 45 minutes and then running them down the river, making lunch and, and then getting back to the boathouse. And that's about it. But I found a way to, <laughs> to bring my guitar in the van and, uh, and sing songs for everybody in the van. And then at lunch, if I wasn't needed, if there was enough guides to cover lunch, I would, you know, play a couple songs and I'd have my carbon fiber guitar and then I'd fall over backward into the river and everyone would gasp and, and wonder if my guitar was going to be okay. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's part of the game is, is really charming the guests and trying to earn good tips. So <laughs> having me around is actually beneficial in, in, in more ways than one. That's so funny. That's so funny. Um, what's the general experience or skill level of the guests? Are these like people who have never been on a river or is it like this is more an advanced thing? How, how, do, how should I think about that? Oh, there's no skill level re- required at all. Um, these, these are just people who, who sign up to, to join a guided trip. Every now and then, um, we do have people who, who are river people um, who come along and... Um, but they don't have their hands on any more than they really wanted to on your passenger profile. When you sign up for an expedition, you can check little marks that say, Oh, I'm interested in paddling or, Hey, I'm a professional kayaker and I'm going to bring my, my, my craft with me. That doesn't really happen very often. Most guests um, are just regular people who are along for the ride we encourage folks to come in with a certain amount of health and fitness because even when you're just sitting on a boat all day and being guided, you know, your typical raft is, is one of the guides with an oar rig, a big metal frame with oars, and the guests are just sitting enjoying and they have to hold on, you know, during the rapids, things like that. <laughs> and they're wearing, you know, uh, PFDs, you know, life jackets, personal flotation devices, and we wear helmets on some of the some of the big rowdy whitewater sections, but they have the opportunity to get on the small craft if they so desire. And it is a real joy seeing first timers getting on a stand up paddleboard and traveling down the river and seeing how you know some of these people might have you know stand up paddleboarded on a lake before, but now we're putting them on running water with with some rapids and some rocks, and we have a stand-up paddle guide out there kind of showing them how to do it and seeing these people just light up and become stand-up paddleboard enthusiasts or uh, kayak enthusiasts in, the, in our little inflatable kayaks. So they do have those opportunities if, if, they, if they choose. And a lot of folks just, you know, are, are happy to sit on the raft and, and just take it all in. You know, I myself am not that kind of person. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm too restless to just sit on a raft. And we also on several trips uh, where there's enough guides and enough guests, we'll take a paddle raft where they can, they can sit and, and paddle and there'll be a paddle guide uh, in the back guiding them down. So it kind of just varies uh, trip to trip. Um, but generally, you know, we accept any and all guests regardless of river experience. Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, to kind of, to, to rewind a little bit, um, what was, what was your first, what was your first music? Like, what did you, what, what were you exposed to or what did you gravitate towards as a kid? 
My dad played guitar and sang old Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley songs. He was from Texas and he was our campfire entertainer. So he was probably the first music I ever heard. Uh, um, dad singing Wreck of the Old 97 or Folsom Prison Blues or um, Tiger by the Tail or Love Me by Elvis Presley or um, Blue Suede Shoes, those kind of songs. And he was also an avid music fan. So, you know, I grew up in, in the 80s and we had Emmylou Harris albums and Ricky Skaggs albums, a lot of uh, 80s, you know, country music. And obviously, you know, he listened to all this Elvis and Johnny Cash music still. So we had a, a bunch of, you know, original Sun records. He called them the Little Records. And that was one of our funnest activities when I was a kid. On the weekends, uh, dad would be cooking or barbecuing or doing uh, what, what he was doing uh, on his days off and running back and forth from the kitchen to flip the, the record, you know, the 45. And, uh, and that was my earliest exposure to music, you know, or Sun Records, rock and roll, and, and the current music of the time. And, and my mom's also a big music fan. We had, you know, all of their old, you know, Mamas and Papas and Karina's Clearwater Revival records. We had a big vinyl collection, which I still have. Uh, I ended up with mom and dad's records. And, and they forced me to take piano lessons when I was six. And I hated it. I hated it so much, but, you know, I stuck with it. And, you know, in about four years, I think I was 10 years old when they finally let me quit. And I blocked it from my mind and I never played piano again. And, uh, and then at one point, and I was always interested in the guitar because I was always hearing my dad play it. And he mostly just strummed rhythm and, and sang. He had a beautiful voice, this, you know, beautiful, chirpy, uh, Texas country kind of voice. And, you know, one day I asked my dad, hey, so you just kind of hold the chords and take the pick and pluck the strings. He says, well, it's a little more complicated. Sometimes you got to use your fingers and do these little finger picking patterns. And I was a kid. I said, oh, that sounds way too hard. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and, and so, you know, fast forward, I'm uh, a freshman in high school, I'm 14. And one of my friends started taking guitar lessons and my mom asks, Hey, why don't you take guitar lessons like, like Robin's doing, you know, you can go down to the, to the music store and it'll give you something to do after school. I'd become disillusioned with sports. I was really athletic, but when I got to high school, I was not interested in the sort of military level of uh, training <laughs> in the weight room and all that stuff. And so uh, uh, I did not pursue football or baseball or the sports that I, that I was, that I was interested in playing. And so guitar became uh, just something to do after school. But I went to a couple guitar lessons uh, that freshman year of high school and, and, and realized that I had a certain amount of ability and I did actually really enjoy it. And so I progressed really fast. And within a year, I think by sophomore year, I was playing in a rock and roll band at, the, at our high school. And we were called Border Town Highway. I grew up in San Diego County. And we released an album. I actually did a couple albums. And, uh, and that's how it all started for me. And I, it's funny because I, I always heard music. I always understood music. And having a little bit of piano background uh, certainly gave me the upper hand. 
but it's when you start playing guitar and I see this happen with people in the bluegrass world and uh, people who start taking guitar lessons from me in any style, really. Once you start playing guitar, you hear music differently. You know, I'd heard Led Zeppelin, I'd heard Jimi Hendrix, but I didn't understand it. As soon as I started playing guitar, immediately I was enthralled with these bands. I became obsessed with Led Zeppelin. I became obsessed with Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. And you hear it on a whole nother level because you understand a little bit about what's happening. So, so that's kind of my entry level, you know, guitar story. It, it, it started with, with rock and roll and kind of evolved from there. Yeah. To, to go back to your point about, um, you know, being a, a guitar player and how, and your understanding of when you, you know, you hear some of the music that, you know, you, you'd been listening to it forever, and now you're, you have the insight and you're like, wow, that's, that's how they pulled that off or what have you. Um, what, what is that insight? Is it that you can now appreciate like, oh, this was before it just sounded good. Now it's like, I understand the proficiency or the gymnastics involved in making that. Like, is it, is it just that level of under, you, you could see the craft yeah that's part of it it's i i truly admire those who are music fans who don't play music like people who actually like really pay attention and understand the little musical hooks and um you know th this relates to people who go like this relates to jam band fans in a way um and you know i started going to grateful dead shows you know when i was in my late teens and when you're following the Grateful Dead, it's like you're following a sports team. Uh, every night is different. You're kind of cheering them on, you know, because they, they don't always nail all their parts and they intentionally try to change them up. So I'm standing next to some like older deadheads who have seen hundreds of shows and, and I'm watching them like, oh, nod their head when, when Garcia would hit that one lick, you know, or, or point like, oh, he's been playing that thing a lot lately. And when, when there's non-musicians who follow music on that level, uh, I really think the world of them because I was not that way. It, it took me actually getting my hands on the instrument to understand and appreciate all those little details, as you mentioned. And then in the bluegrass world, especially, most bluegrass fans play a little bit of bluegrass. Um, that is yeah. part of the, the beauty of that style of music is that it is, it is so inclusive and you know, most people who play bluegrass at least strum a few chords or, you know, uh, play some type of bluegrass instrument on a beginning level. Yeah. And that really strengthens the, the, the bonds of the music community and really helps the fan base appreciate what some of these artists are doing at such a high level. Um, because once you pick up that instrument and, and, and you can, you know, play around a little bit at a slow tempo, and then you go see Del McCurry band or Ricky Skaggs or Billy Strings and, and you watch these people and say, Oh my gosh, I see how hard that they have worked and, and how far beyond my skill level they are. And that just gives you a, and, and, you know, an appreciation on a much higher level of understanding for sure. Yeah. There's something ridiculous about seeing like a world-class mandolin player do their thing. And it's like, 
<laughs> what the right. hell? <laughs> it's like watching a, 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 a highly tuned sports car blow past you. It's, it's really incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and not not just the, the musical ability, but their ability to pull that off on a high pressure situation with thousands of people watching them and and crowd noise and other distractions. You know, I mean, the the game of 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 concentration and focus that, you know, professional musicians have. Um, yeah, there's there's it's 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 mind blowing to me still. You know, I mean, I've been at this for for, you know, 25 years as a professional musician and I still get um, get nervous, you know, and, and still am affected by distractions and, and things like that. And it's, yeah. it's, it's just a constant inner game that we play. And when you see people pull that off and, and, and really nail it, it takes a special kind of personality and uh, an intense amount of work and preparation to get to that level. Have you ever been on stage with another musician when you're, you know, when, 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 when everybody's playing or you're trading off solos and do you ever stand back and say, Holy shit. Like, are you, are you, are you too in the moment to appreciate it? And have you ever been blown away in a live situation? Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, we have those moments, but you know, if I'm on stage with somebody and we're like trading licks or something and I have to step up and, and perform it's, you know, there's this game of like faking it till you make it, you know, <laughs> which all of us, all of us have, uh, have used that tool when we needed to. Uh, but yeah, certainly, you know, there's, there's been situations when I've been like scared, scared to death or, you know, um, you know, with players like Billy um, or Sam Bush, you know, these veterans, you know, I've gotten to share the stage with, with people like that. And, you know, when you're up there performing and, and you're being counted on, you, you know, there, sure. There's been times when I've been tempted to just drop my hands and just, take it in, you know, like a deer in the headlights kind of moment. Uh, but in those situations, like you're up there, you're with them and you're trying to rise to that level. So I guess to answer your question, it's more of a, um, it's almost like these people who, who blow you away with their musicality are, are in that way offering you that opportunity to step up to that same level. So sharing stage with people like, Sam Bush, Billy Strings, Jerry Douglas, you know, Drew Emmett, uh, Chris Thiele, people like that. Um, it, it helps us raise our own bar and give us that much more of a belief in ourselves. And, and again, that's, that comes down to, to the student level, like at these music camps, because you have access to these people as instructors at a lot of camps. And I'll see that happen with people out there, you know, recreational jammers and, and they'll take that opportunity to really step up to the level of these musicians they're hanging around with. And it's, and it's a beautiful thing. You know, I'm myself am a victim of sometimes not really taking that moment to appreciate what's happening. You know, sometimes a, a, a show will go by and I'll step off stage and just look back and say, what happened? <laughs> you know, and part of that is just being in the moment and trying to, to do your best. But part of it is also just my own inner game saying, Oh, I hope the people had a good time. Oh, I hope I nailed this lick or I hope I sang this song in tune, you know? So the ability to go up there and perform on a high level and enjoy it, that's another, you know, next level kind of thing for us. Yeah. I love that phrase, recreational jammer. That's great. <laughs> that's, yeah. It's like an official classification. Um, the, yeah, that, that there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but one of the things that strikes me is you said a lot of 
the fans of the music are also um, even at some level, just, you know, hobbyists, they have a guitar sitting around or they, you know, they play at some level. And it strikes me that, um, you know, in the most pure definition, it's, it's, it's a folk music and there's a tradition, there's a canon even, and there's, you know, everybody could play certain, you know, it's like the blues in that way. And that there's just, there's forms and there's, there's, there's songs that are passed down. But I also, because of the technical proficiency involved in so much bluegrass music has it doesn't seem as though like with jazz it's made the leap to like conservatory or made the leap necessary to necessarily to um what would be the right way to say it like you know where where jazz was a dance music and then it became more of um more of a a, a performance and less about the audience engagement Bluegrass has seemed to maintain its its connection to folk in a, in a different way, but still growing musically. And I wonder, am I at all right about like, am I picking up on the right thing there? And could you talk about that a little? That's, you know, you're making very good points. I like to describe bluegrass music as nursery rhyme simple. Like the songs are truly nursery rhyme simple. Um, if you're talking about traditional bluegrass, like Bill Monroe and, and, and Flatten Scruggs and the Stanley Brothers, those songs are mostly just very simple major scale melodies, you know, two or three chords. Salty Dog. Salty Dog, yeah. Salty Dog has four chords. But they are, they are performed at a extremely high level of, of instrumental proficiency. So you take this very, very simple theme and expand on it and put your own little twist on it and play it, you know, blazing fast and with a lot of rhythmic complexity. So the music itself is, is accessible on that folk level. And these are definitely folk songs and they can be formed very, you know, they can be performed at, you know, a, a real simple way. So the music is accessible uh, to everybody. And, you know, bluegrass music is an evolution of, of old time string band music. And it, this music was originally made for dancing and it was Bill Monroe who was the first to adapt it to more of a performance style where one of the band members would step up and solo and have a bit of improvisation, a bit of a, a personal, um, you know, twist on the music where Previously, old-time string band music is more of a collective. Everyone sits down and plays things, you know, in unison, all together, kind of like, you know, Irish Celtic folk music. And Bill Monroe took that style and converted it to a performance style. And one of his influences uh, was baseball, where you have, you know, a batter up there on, on his own, um, and it's all on him at that moment. And he was, he was a, a baseball player the early... Uh, bluegrass boys would travel around and they would challenge the local baseball team uh, to a game, you know, before their concert, it was one of their little uh, promotional tools. Um, so, so yeah, as, as you're saying, the way, the way jazz evolved from dance music into more serious, you know, listening music with, with the advent of bebop uh, bluegrass music took on that same trajectory um, ever since Monroe kind of, instigated all of this um kind of performance style string band music and and he, but monroe himself was a dancer and he never wanted the dance to be to be taken out of the style but you know bluegrass music became more of a sit down and listen kind of style um 
through, you know, the, the standard bluegrass festivals. And it wasn't until the jam band people got a hold of it that, you know, the dance kind of came back. You know, now we go to bluegrass concerts and, and everybody dances, which is really fun. Um, but there is a movement that started in the 1970s called New Acoustic. And some of the early players in this scene were, you know, David Grisman, uh, Daryl Anger, Mike Marshall, um, and Tony Rice, and players like this who mm-hmm. really, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, <laughs> oh yeah, Impe- impeccable Tony Rice, yes. Um, and they wanted to take bluegrass music and elevate it to more of a, a chamber music level, and. And, and they certainly did, you know, all these artists kind of started, started their own, like, you know, instrumental styles of, of music that, that you wouldn't call bluegrass. Like David Grisman created his own genre of music. He called it dog music, you know, and that was a kind of a fusion of bluegrass and swing with some classical influences. And then all these other players, Daryl Anger um, was a, was a big ring leader of that Daryl Anger and Mike Marshall and then that that influence got picked up by younger players like Chris Thiele and Sarah Watkins and Sean Watkins with Nickel Creek. And they started a movement in the 90s um, that really took this new acoustic music to, to another level. And now Chris, you know, has the Punch Brothers. And, and that music to me is, is an evolution of bluegrass influence to a chamber music level so that that does happen and there's lots of bands and artists doing that mark o'connor another another big one uh in that scene and he went on to become a classical you know composer uh and you hear collaborations of mark o'connor and uh edgar meyer with you know classical players like yo-yo ma yeah um so so those bridges have been crossed and that movement is very strong and i would sort of you know, point people to the Punch Brothers as as the group that sort of exemplifies these things, and uh, and and incorporates the vocal element to it as well, uh, not just instrumental chamber music, but this this you know bluegrass influenced chamber music with with really interesting vocals in the mix as well, and and they've gone ahead and as Nickel Creek you know did previously. Uh, taking influences from pop music and 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 indie indie music and groups like Radiohead, um, and I see a cross influence of players like in the jazz scene, like Brad Meldow, who would take you know yeah. uh, a Radiohead song, for instance, and play a really cool jazz version of it. And then a group like Nickel Creek would do that and take it and sort of adapt their their version of of, of a similar type type of song. Um, so yeah, the 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 traditional system of bluegrass music stands, and and in in my in my opinion, it's a perfect system. You can't really improve on it. You know, the five piece bluegrass band that Bill Monroe assembled in 1946 with Earl Scruggs and Lester Flat and uh, uh, Chubby Wise on fiddle, and the way that group kind of laid down the law of how that happens. That is bluegrass music. The way Chuck Berry laid down the law on rock and roll music. Um, and then that evolved and, and things do evolve. Um, but I, I, I hold bluegrass music on that same standard as I hold uh, like Baroque music or classical music. 
you're not going to improve much on a Mozart composition or a Bach composition. And you're not going to improve much on a Bill Monroe composition or a Bill Monroe style of playing that composition. But what you can do is branch off from that and evolve and create new systems. Um, so that folk element of traditional bluegrass is always there and it's always accessible. And all of these people like, you know, the punch brothers, Mark O'Connor, you know, Sam Bush, these, you know, Tony Rice, progressive players who, who expanded into this chamber music realm, they still love to go back and play those simple songs. It's really interesting. You talked about it earlier. You know, I've observed it as a music fan and, um, you know, a recovering deadhead myself, um, that overlap between, you know, the, all the music that the Grateful Dead sucked in and metabolized and then put back out into the world. That's sort of one strand, but then the, the parallel strands that whether, uh, you know, the metaphor breaks down, whether they shot off from the dead or whether they were developing in parallel, but the sort of, um, you know, the Grisman overlap or Jerry's forays into bluegrass and how, how pop, you know, if the Grateful Dead are in any way popular music, um, how that audience in particular, um, in a way really was there to sustain bluegrass for a while. And now in the last 20, 30 years of sort of the jam band movement, um, I would argue it's probably got a bigger platform than ever certainly since bill monroe i mean just in terms of there must be such a vibrant even economic community to be a bluegrass player there's a circuit there's festivals um you know the idea that you could have bluegrass inflected bands playing amphitheaters in any major city around the country on any given summer night i i don't think i would have guessed that as a, a teenager listening to the grateful dead i mean it's phenomenal it's crazy it is a phenomenon and thank God, because bluegrass music, you know, it, it started, it wasn't called bluegrass when Monroe was on the Opry in the 1940s. He was just playing his style of country, old time music. And he saw other bands come along and, you know, first, you know, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs left his band to start their own band, you know, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs and the Foggy Mountain Boys. And Monroe was vehement he was pissed because they he thought they were taking his style and he even petitioned the grand old opry to not let them join because he was the band that played that style and uh, all these other bands came along stanley brothers reno and smiley all these you know first generation bands they the, that word bluegrass music was not invented until the 1960s during the great, you know, the folk, the great folk scare, right? The, the folk movement and folk festivals started and, you know, uh, music, musicologists, folk historians like Pete Seeger and Ralph Rinsler and uh, went around and, and discovered that, oh, Bill Monroe is the guy who started this. So they came up with this term to describe the style as bluegrass, you know, based on the name of, of his group, the Bluegrass Boys. And once Bill Monroe realized he had created a genre, he was honored and he softened and he forgave all these people for, uh, for you know, stealing his music. He, he realized he had created his own genre. And, and so he became 
a, a different Bill Monroe than the bitter Monroe of the of the of the fifties and sixties, early sixties, and also that folk movement is what created um, the the festival circuit. And all of these bluegrass artists were, were welcomed into the festival circuit. During the 1950s, they were edged out by rock and roll. And if you weren't a member of the Grand Ole Opry, you were playing in a bar somewhere. You know, there was this culture of what I call tavern bluegrass. I learned this from Eddie Stubbs in Nashville, tavern bluegrass. And, you know, groups like the Lilly Brothers would play six nights a week at a bar in Washington, D.C., you know, four sets a night. And, and they didn't have this outlet. They didn't have this community to plug into. So there was a time when, when, you know, bluegrass and string bands were really, you know, soldiering it out through really, really tough times. And the bluegrass, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the festival community um, inspired by Philly folk festival, Newport folk festival, these early folk festivals, um, you know, it wasn't until 1969, I think, uh, well, Carlton Haney started up the Camp Springs Bluegrass Festival in North Carolina, the first bluegrass festival. And then Bill Monroe created Bean Blossom. And that was the birth of the bluegrass festival movement, which, which really caught on and gave these bands an outlet and, and a means of making a living and got them out of the bars into this beautiful outdoor setting, which we now associate with bluegrass music. And then comes the Grateful Dead. And, you know, they created the scene of, you know, as you know, thousands of fans following them around the country, going to every show, going on tour with them. And then here comes Garcia with his bluegrass roots and uh, starting up Olden in the Way with Peter Rowan and David Grisman and Vassar Clements and John Kahn. And they unknowingly record the most popular bluegrass album of all time. And that was just a live show that was recorded by Owsley Stanley in 1971, maybe, I don't know the date. And uh, it wasn't released till 1974. And it was just a live show by a, a little band called Olden in the Way. And since Sherry Garcia was in it, it became huge. And that album, I believe it might still be the biggest selling bluegrass album of all time. And it is traditional bluegrass music. These guys are dyed in the wool. I mean, Peter Rowan, you know, played with Bill Monroe. He was his lead singer and guitarist. And Garcia himself was on that path. He wanted to play with Bill Monroe. That was, uh, as, an, as a young banjo player, that was his goal. And so this all sort of cross-pollinates to the point where the Grateful Dead are done. Jerry Garcia dies. There's, there's, there's this, this cataclysm in the world for deadheads. They have nowhere to go. Then the festival movement really stepped up and these sort of like jam band festivals started. I mean, when, when the Grateful Dead were touring in the 80s and 90s, there was no Bonnaroo. There was no Winter Wondergrass. There was no, um, you know, Blue Ox Festival. There was no big like jam band music wasn't a thing yet, right? It was, it was the Grateful Dead, and then it was Fish, and then it was Widespread Panic. And then all these bands realized, oh, we are being labeled as jam bands. I don't know if Jerry Garcia would have liked that very much. You know, Garcia himself, he, he didn't even like being called a hippie. You know, he thought he was a beatnik. And uh, so all this stuff kind of evolves in, this, in a, such a similar you know, way, this echo of how bluegrass music worked. And, you know... 
in, in the jam band context, it's not such a closed system as, as bluegrass is. But all of these bands took on elements that, that were sort of, you know, the, the Grateful Dead paved the way for, you know, the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, Santana, all these groups that added this jazz improvisational element to rock and roll music. And the Grateful Dead obviously brought in, you know, Garcia is as responsible as Pete Seeger for the amount of folk songs in our, you know, understanding right now. He brought all the, in, you know, and Bob Weir, all those members of the Grateful Dead brought in all of these old folk songs. And here we are singing like Jack Rowe or Peggy O or, you know, we would not have known these songs if it wasn't for Garcia bringing them out yeah. to the public. And so today I'm seeing this, this amazing sort of cross pollination of the jam band scene into the bluegrass scene and, you know, yonder mountain string band leftover salmon, these groups that kind of brought the jam band element into bluegrass music. And now there's this thing they call jam grass. It's like, okay, where does it end? And uh, as a dyed in the wool bluegrass fan myself, I appreciate, um, the broad definition of bluegrass music, because coming back to your point, you know, Avid Brothers, they do not play bluegrass music. Old Crow, music, Old Crow Medicine Show do not play bluegrass music. You know, Leftover Salmon, like they can play bluegrass, but they do not. They have their own version of it. Uh, but if people call that bluegrass, that's good because it grows the scene. It grows the fan base. And, People can, you know, have the debate about what is bluegrass music? Well, it's this, you know, or it's that. Well, you know, we have to let go of those definitions and those biases because uh, this broad definition of what is labeled as bluegrass today actually has helped grow the scene and perpetuate these festivals and grow the fan base and give bands the opportunity to step into this culture and step into this um, uh, society and plug themselves into the festivals and actually make a living and get by. So this growth of the bluegrass music style and all of its roots and branches and everything that was influenced by that early, very strict style of Bill Monroe is so much appreciated by all of us in the industry. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it that way because it's not you could definitely draw a parallel to where jazz was, say, from the mid-late 60s into the early mid-70s, um, the debates around what is jazz, the sort of modernization of bringing in electronic equipment, um, branching off into funk, you know, who brought in a psychedelic element or what have you, like a very, very similar unfolding of traditionalists versus the next generation, Um you know, the audience growing in certain segments. Like it's just, it seems like there's a lot of strong parallels there between the two musics. Oh, definitely. And, and I would bring rock and roll into this conversation as well, because, you know, if you listen to Elvis Presley or Carl Perkins or um, Chuck Berry, you know, some people would say, and my dad, my dad himself, he said, I checked out of rock and roll when Elvis joined the army. You know, his definition of rock and roll is, <laughs> is very precise and very um, strict. Um, so what about Led Zeppelin? You know, what about the Allman brothers? What about the grateful dead? You know, what about, um, you know, my morning jacket, you know, it's, uh, it, it's the same, same kind of evolution in all these music styles. And I think, uh, 
Frank Zappa put it really well. He said, uh, you know, take, take a piece of Hawaiian music and play it with an electric guitar and a drum kit, and they're going to call it rock and roll. And it's, it's uh, you know, kind of similar with, with, with jazz. You know, if you take a, a, you know, a Radiohead song and play it with a piano and a saxophone and a, and a, and a jazz drum kit, they're going to call it jazz. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, as a jazz history buff as well, you know, seeing all of the, you have the same sort of uh, traditionalist approach to jazz music. And I went to college at Cal Arts where the jazz program is, 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 is outstanding, but they were all locked into this one era. They were all locked into, you know, the bebop and cool jazz era um, at, at a level where to me it was just really stifling and really, um, you know, almost too uh, stuck up. And, and jazz is supposed to be exploratory. It's supposed to be, um, you know, experimental. Um, and are you going to call, you know, you're going to listen to, you know, um, Charlie Parker playing, you know, ornithology or... Um, Ah, Pravav or any of those like bebop compositions, and you're going to call that jazz. Yep, we call that bebop. And you go back and listen to you know Duke Ellington playing "Take the A Train." Well, that's swing. Yeah, okay, that's jazz swing. And then you go and you listen to Miles Davis "Bitches Brew." What is that? <laughs> you know, is it jazz? Is it rock and roll? And so they had to create this word called fusion, right? And um, and now you listen to like groups that played you know fusion music in the 70s and it's almost become its own strict style where you know groups today you know if like it's almost like a throwback like oh i play jazz fusion just like you know weather report or you know what i mean um so it's it's really funny it's it's you know genre categorization has always been a challenge and and they need it for algorithms and the industry needs it to chart sales and 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 all that kind of thing um but man like you know the expansion of jazz music has has done nothing but help that that uh you know that style to grow and for those artists to have a chance to make a living and those who accept it you know traditionalists like bill monroe in the bluegrass world when he would jump up and, and sit in with Newgrass Revival or the Seldom Scene and, and John Hartford. He was accepting that this music was growing and he might not have liked it, but he knew it was good for the scene. So he accepted and adapted and went with it. And, you know, Miles Davis exemplifies that to me in the jazz world. I mean, how he evolved and how he would take, you know, um, a Michael Jackson song and perform it in his own way. You know, he was embracing the changing of the times and, and, and in that way he, he was successful and he wasn't like stuck in the mud, you know, fighting about like, Oh, what is jazz? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know our, I know our time together is, um, is, is getting rapidly, uh, <laughs> rapidly not coming to an end, but, um, and there's so much we didn't even get to yet, but I, there was one thing I, I did want to make sure I ask you about, and that was um, the notion of, uh, well, in your biography, you're, you're referred to often as a national guitar champion, a flat picking champion. And you know, that conjures up all kinds of imagery, like a, a, you know, a champion. That's a very specific word, right? Like, and so what is, what's the format of a guitar competition? How do you become the champion? To become the national 
flat picking champion, you have to go to the Walnut Valley Festival in Winfield, Kansas in September and sign up for the flat picking contest and win it. So it's as simple as that. Um, the National Flat Picking Championship was established in the early 1970s, and it is an evolution of the tradition of fiddle contests. Now, fiddle contests have been around since the 19th century. Um, and there are some artists through the years that have just made their living by traveling the country and, and playing the fiddle contest. Some, some of the great um, artists we recognize now in old time music, you know, Clark Kessinger, for example, he was a, a fiddler who just made his living in the early days by, you know, winning all the, the fiddle contests around the country. So flat picking. And again, this, this, you know, kind of, relates to the bluegrass discussion flat picking didn't become a style necessarily until the 60s and 70s it was it was always a part of uh, bluegrass music mostly in in the rhythm you know like bluegrass guitar is 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 primarily a rhythm instrument with a lot of little runs you play with your pick you know little bass runs and and things like that and Early players who brought that into the bluegrass style or became known as bluegrass were Don Reno, um, uh, George Shuffler in, in, in the Stanley Brothers. They were, they were putting guitar breaks. That's a word for guitar solos. They were putting guitar breaks into these recordings as early as the, the 1950s. Bill Monroe never liked that. He didn't like guitar solos. You know, he didn't want any fancy guitar in, in his music. Um, but uh, so, and then, you know, this, this flat picking style actually becomes a thing. It becomes, you know, called flat picking probably as early as the late 1960s. And it was Doc Watson and Clarence White and um, Dan Crary um, who, who kind of took the influence of Don Reno and George Shuffler and Bill Napier and took that to the next level. And everybody who, if anyone asks me, what is flat picking or, you know, how, what, what does that mean? I say, well, I'll just put on a Doc Watson recording. I'll say, listen to this. This is flat picking. Um, so anyway, the, that didn't become popular enough to warrant a contest until the 1970s. And Winfield was the original. And uh, they established... Um, this with the same rules as a fiddle contest where basically you take something traditional, you work up an arrangement of it and you perform it. And then you were judged on parameters like uh, execution, uh, timing, tuning, um, uh, authenticity. So you have to play within a certain parameter at the flat picking contest. So Winfield started and then they branched up all over the country. There's lots of flat picking contests around the country um, Winfield is still the big one and that is your, your calling card. If you are a flat picker, if you're a contest style flat picker and you win Winfield, that is the Holy grail. You are the national flat picking champion. There are no prerequisites for signing up. It's an open contest. You just oh, have to wow. sign up. Yeah. You just have to sign up in time before it fills up there. It's limited to 40 contestants. And there is a waiting list if, if you don't make the initial sign up. 
I think the year that I won, I don't think there was 40 contestants. There might've been, you know, 35, you know, it wasn't a completely full. So it's, it's something that it's almost like the Olympics where it's a lot of amateur players who sign up for these, like Tony Rice wouldn't have gone and, 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 and participated at, at the national flat picking championship. That's just kind of, uh, that's just not very cool. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, a lot of players get into this, like when they're coming up, you know, and that's how I did, you know, when I was younger and, uh, just wanting to make a name for myself and also really, you know, was struggling and, and, and needed to make a living. So, when you win these contests, you get nice prizes. You get nice guitars at Winfield. You, you get a, a cash prize as well. So for me, this kind of became my side hustle. And I came from a sort of a conservatory background and played classical guitar. So when I picked up flat picking, I, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't do that early on. I got into that when I was in college, but I took all of my classical training and applied it to bluegrass, you know, flat picking. And that sort of gave me the upper hand when it came to arranging a piece and executing a piece on that level. Um, so, so I started, you know, traveling to the contest in the early 2000s and, and really kind of went in it with that mindset that I'm going to win, you know, and, and, and practice those arrangements every day as if I was practicing for a classical recital. And, uh, um, and yeah, so at Winfield, the way it works is, it's uh, this open contest. It's, it's a blind judging situation. So the judges don't know if you're male or female. They don't know your name. They're in a different booth somewhere uh, away from the audience. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And all they can hear is the microphone that is on your guitar. So you can have one accompanist to keep rhythm for you, but all that they're hearing is, is, is your microphone. And you will get... Um, you will get docked points or disqualified if you speak into the mic or they even discourage uh, gender specific coughing because <laughs> they want this to be completely uh, unbiased and for the judges to base it completely on your arrangement and your execution and, you know, your playing your performance. So uh, you show up early that morning. It's the Saturday of Winfield. You show up at 8:30 AM to draw numbers so if you get the dreaded number one, you got to go on first at 9 a.m. Um, if you get the dreaded number 40, you got to go on last, like three hours later and, and, and mill around and try not to get too nervous and stay, stay loose, stay warmed up. So, uh, so they just call your number. Here's contestant number one. And contestant number one takes the stage and performs two arrangements. And you're limited to five minutes. If you go over five minutes on those two arrangements, you'll get deducted uh, points. So we have this down to a science. We work up an arrangement, you know, uh, pick a traditional tune and play through it maybe three times. You know, you don't want to overdo it. And the first time through, you might kind of play the melody kind of like you would in a jazz piece. And then the next couple of times around, you'll, you'll, do variations and try to throw in some real acrobatic guitar moves, some triplets, some fast picking. It's kind of like putting together a gymnastic routine or a, or an ice skating routine. Cause, cause, cause when you're in this scene for a while, you understand what the judges are looking for and you have to have a certain amount of technicality in, in your arrangement. So you play your two pieces and then you sit and you worry and you wait for the first round, and then the judges will tally up the scores, and they will call the top five. 
So here's the top five, number two, number eight, number 25, whatever the top five players are. And it's still anonymous. And those five players will gather backstage and get ready for round two. So now it's just between those top five. And you have two different arrangements. It's the same rules again, five minutes. You go up on stage, try to, you know, you don't have to play perfect, but you just have to play better than the other players. And, <laughs> and I tell you what, the level of nerves in that situation is the highest that I've ever experienced. It's not like performing. It's, it's like you're being judged and you're trying to win this contest. So it's a really funny mind game. And it's really rare to hear players play their absolute best in that situation. I kind of have to pretend it's a performance and look out at the audience and look at them smiling and just play and forget about the judging because you can get the nerves and get the shakes, you know, like being, oh, this is my one shot to win this contest, you know. So that's how it works. And then uh, they'll call the top three at the end. And at Winfield, uh, the first place gets the first pick of the guitars. There's usually a Collings guitar, a Martin guitar, and a Gallagher guitar. And uh, first place gets the first pick of those three. And second place gets the, the second pick. And then the, e even if you win third place, you get a nice guitar. So... Um, so it can be a profitable game for those of us who are in this uh, contest scene. Um, and, but the National Flat Picking Championship is, is a real calling card for many of us. It, it helps me um, open up my, my scene quite a bit, especially in the instructional realm. You know, I got invited to Steve Kaufman's acoustic camp. He's the big legendary, you know, three-time Winfield champion, and he created an educational empire based on that. And he runs a big, uh, big music camp in Tennessee. And so being invited to Kaufman camp was, was huge for me. Um, that was a big, a big move in my career as a, as a guitarist. And, uh, and having that on my, um, <laughs> you know, on my buyout, it's just a great calling card. And it's, it's something I am very proud of. And, uh, and I'm really glad I did it when I did. You know, I'd, I'd rather be known for, just having great albums and great performances and great songs. Um, but that's something that people can latch on to and, and, you know, have a quick association with who I am and kind of what level that I'm trying to perform at. Yeah. It's a really neat, really neat thing. Thank you for uh, enlightening me on that. And uh, hey, you're welcome. it's really great to talk to you, Tyler. I'm so fascinated by, um, I, I could spend another two hours talking to you, uh, of the, the music history and the musicology and, um, even just more about your own specific journey and career. But um, I thank you so much for taking time out of uh, what I'm sure is an otherwise busy day. And um, I hope, uh, hope we get the cross paths again and maybe finish the conversation. Uh, you're welcome, Lawrence. And thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk to you and you're, you're very well informed. And yeah, I'm in the same boat. I could talk, talk all day about this stuff with someone like you. So thank you for being here and thank you very much for, for what light is doing in, in the music business and uh, it's something we really needed and, uh, you know, carry on uh, for, forward and forthwith. All right, man. I'll see you soon. Take care and be safe. Okay. Thank you. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Tyler Grant. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Sparks the wind struck from your hair. 